Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we heard Bradley Tusk, a tech investor and political advisor to Uber, on the highs and lows of the ride-sharing company's rapid expansion. This week, we talk to a historian and writer who has been looking at what happens when automation takes away our jobs. Time and time again, what research has found is that poverty is not a lack of character or a personality defect, as Margaret Thatcher once said. It's just a lack of cash. And it's very easy to cure a lack of cash, you know, if you use cash. That was Rutger Bregman, who came into the FT studio to talk to me about his book, Utopia for Realists, and why he believes that a universal basic income is an idea whose time has come. I began by asking him what prompted him to write the book. Well, you must know I was born in 1988, which was a year before the fall of the Berlin Wall. And people of my generation were told that we shouldn't dream in utopian terms anymore. We all know that book published by Francis Fukuyama, The End of History and The Last Men. And he basically argued that with the fall of the wall that we had arrived at the end of history and all that was left was thinking about, well, the next consumer gadget, uh, maybe the new iPhone or something like that. And I always had the nagging sense that we had lost something, that every milestone of civilization, democracy, equal rights for men and women, the end of slavery, it all started out as a utopian fantasy. So if we want more progress in this century, we need to have these utopian visions. As you start off in the book, we're actually pretty much living in utopia already, aren't we? I mean, you have this amazing statistic that a homeless person in the Netherlands today on public assistance spends more than the average Dutch person did in 1950. Even the poorest members of our society are relatively so much better off than they were before. So why do we need a utopian vision if we're already living incredibly well? Well, there's this great quote from Oscar Wilde. He wrote at the end of the 19th century is that progress is the realization of utopias. And every time we realize a new utopia, we should look out again and see where we want to go next. And I think the big problem of my time, of my generation, is not so much that we don't have a good, but that we don't really have an idea, a vision, an ideal of where we want to go next. And what we do have nowadays is a dystopian movement with Trump and Brexit that wants to go back to the past. So I think that it's simply not an option to just stick to the alternative or only know what you're against, as it's the problem with the modern left nowadays. It's against, well, basically everything. <laughs> what has yeah. happened to the left? I mean, the left is completely absent. We've had this yeah, yeah. massive financial crisis. We've had a complete discrediting of the neoliberal project, as you put it in your book. Mm-hmm. The left is nowhere. What has happened across Europe? Well, as a historian, I think that crises play a big role in history. So in the book, I tell the story of the Mont Pelerin Society, you know, the club of neoliberal thinkers founded, I think, at the beginning of the 50s with Milton Friedman and Friedrich von Hayek. And at that point in history, they were dismissed as crazy and ludicrous. And they were in the fringes of the debate. But they knew that if they would just start building their ideas and building a movement, that at some point a crisis would come. And indeed, it came in the 70s with stagflation and the oil crisis, and then we got Reagan and Thatcher, etc. So crises are really important. But the problem was in 2008 is that the homework had not been done. So there was no real alternative. People from the left to the right had said to each other, well, we're here at the end of history. The question is now with you know the new big crisis here of 2016, has the homework been done now? And I'm a little bit more optimistic, especially if you see the basic income movement taking off. But I'm not sure yet, to be honest. 
Could you tell us something about the experiments that are taking place and some of those that have been in the past? I mean, your book is full of some of the lessons that were learnt or forgotten. And clearly one of the most interesting was the debate that was going on in Canada and then America in the early Nixon years. And we got incredibly close, which most people seem to forget, to having a basic income passed by Nixon, even if it was a a negative income tax, I think the purists would say. But could you tell us a bit about that? How did that debate come about and what happened? Well, let me first tell you a little bit about the Canadian experiment, because this is perhaps the most fascinating story. What happened at the beginning of the 70s in the US and Canada, everyone believed that some form of basic income was going to be implemented in the near future. And so they wanted to start with a big experiment first. And in Canada, they did it in Dolphin. It's a small town and everybody in Dolphin was guaranteed a basic income, ensuring that no one fell below the poverty line. Now, the experiment went on for four years. And after four years, there was a new government voted into power. It was, in fact, a conservative government. And they said, what are you doing here? I mean, you're giving free money to people. Stop this at once. And there was no money left to analyze the results. And they put all the files and all the data that had been gathered away in about 2,000 boxes. And it was only 30 years later that a Canadian professor found them again, did the research, did the analysis, and discovered that the experiment had been quite a big success, actually. She found, for example, that the hospitalization rate decreased by as much as 8.5%. Kids performed much better in school. Domestic violence went down as were mental health complaints. And perhaps most importantly, people didn't quit their jobs. The decline in work hours was about 1% for male wage earners, 3% for women, 5% for married women. And also young people started working a little bit less, but they went to school longer. So the results were quite positive of that experiment, but just forgotten. Did divorce rates go up? That's one of the arguments made against basic income. That yeah, it that, enables that's what actually people. happened. It's really interesting. That was happened in the US experience, which were happening at the same time. This is really a bizarre history. If you believe in laws of history or whatever, just read these stories. It's full of bizarre coincidences, and it could have easily happened the other way. So what happened here is that the researchers found that in one of the US experiments in Seattle, the divorce rate went up by 50%. Now, at that point, many conservative politicians who first had been in favor of a guaranteed annual income said, we can't have this. This is a really, really bad idea. This will make women much too independent. It was only 10 years later that they found out that a statistical mistake had been made. So in reality, the divorce rate didn't go up at all. So that's one of the bizarre coincidences. Okay, let's go back to the Nixon experience. Can you tell us what happened? So as I said, at the end of the 60s, almost everyone believed that some form of basic income was going to be implemented. So Milton Friedman, the great neoliberal economist, was in favor of it, but also Martin Luther King, John Kenneth Galbraith, you know, leftist thinkers and campaigners. There was even a letter to the New York Times by five prominent economists signed by a thousand other economists. Everyone believed that it was going to happen. And Nixon just thought, well, let me be the president who makes history. Let's do it. And he made two bills in which he proposed a modest basic income that got through the House of Congress with an overwhelming majority. But then when they hit the Senate floor, the left basically killed it because they thought that his basic income proposal wasn't high enough. So the Democrats were against it. Again, (laughs) full of bizarre ironies. There's a really good book written about this called The Filt Welfare Revolution by Brian Steensland. I really recommend it. Okay, I wondered if we could 
move on to the costs of a universal basic income, because as you were saying, it is supported by people on the left and on the right. And uh, the Cato Institute, which is a kind of well-known libertarian institute, came out with a big report on universal basic income a couple of years ago. They supported it in principle because they see such terrible things wrong with the welfare state, which, according to them, in the US, they spend about a trillion dollars a year on 126 anti-poverty programs at the kind of federal and state and local level. And yet still we have high poverty levels in America. But when they studied the practicalities of implementing a UBI, even on a basic income of $12,000 for close to 300 million Americans, that gets you to a bill of $4.4 trillion, which is more than all of the federal spending at the moment. So even on a relatively modest basic income, the costs of it are phenomenal. So how can societies ever justify the cost of a UBI? To be honest, I think figures like those are really, really misleading. You have to look at the net costs of a basic income and not at the gross costs. So some people will receive a basic income but pay the same amount in additional taxes and nothing will change. One of the most important effects of a basic income would obviously be to eradicate poverty. Now, the first question would be, how much are the poor in the US, for example, collectively beneath the poverty line? And it's not much, actually. It's $175 billion, a quarter of the country's military budget, less than 1% of GDP. So that's the first thing. I think that the net costs of basic income are actually much smaller. Obviously, the devil is in the details. I mean, it all depends on how you finance it. In theory, you could finance a basic income and increase inequality if you let the lower middle classes pay for it. I'm not in favor of that, by the way. So that's one thing. The second thing, and this is maybe even more important, is that I see basic income as an investment. It's an investment with pretty good returns. For example, again, in the US, we've got one recent study that found that the cost of child poverty are estimated $500 billion each year. Now, remember, I just said that if you want to eradicate poverty, it's $175 billion. The cost of child poverty are $500 billion. And this is also what we find in some fascinating experiments. For example, there's one story in the book about a natural experiment that happened in North Carolina where a casino opened and they used the earnings of the casino. They gave it all to the eastern bend of Cherokee Indians who lived there. And researchers later found out that the cash transfers they got resulted in lower healthcare costs, less crime, kids perform better in school, and that the savings were actually bigger than the cash grants were. So I think that you can argue that this is an investment that may pay for itself in the long run. I went to Switzerland last year and they had a referendum on the universal or unconditional basic income, as they called it there. And one of the objections from the left was that they feared that those on the right would use it as a means of trashing the existing welfare state, that there is a a kind of worry that UBI would be introduced, everyone would initially benefit, and then the right wing would then say, well, this is unaffordable, we need to cut it and erode it. And so not so much in Switzerland, but elsewhere, there is a fear that this is a kind of Trojan horse for the right, that it just opens up the whole field to them destroying the welfare state. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's anything to those arguments? To be honest, I think it's the other way around. So I think it's a Trojan horse that the left should use. For example, Alaska has a small basic income of about $1,000, $2,000. It varies each year, paid with oil dividends. It's also the state with the lowest inequality in the U.S., If you try and touch that basic income in Alaska, you're finished as a politician. Once you have a basic income, it's really hard to get rid of. Nevertheless, theoretically, it could happen, yes. I mean, you could have a a basic income that increases inequality. I'm not in favor of it. But I don't think that's a reason to just 
ignore the idea or forget about it. I think it's just a reason to be very clear about what kind of basic income you want. So I'm not saying that we should get rid of the NHS or get rid of universal health care or get rid of free education and just replace it with one cash grant. I really think that the basic income is a supplement to these great achievements of civilization. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And how is this going to be implemented around the world? I mean, there's some local experiments going on at the moment. Can you tell us about some of those? I mean, the one going on in your own country, the Netherlands, some in Finland and so on. But which are the most interesting? Which should we pay attention to? Um, well, I'm not sure, actually. The Canadian experiment looks very promising. It's going to be quite big. There's a huge budget there. The Finnish experiment already started. In the Netherlands, there are going to be about 20 cities who are going to do a partial basic income experiment. There's also Y Combinator in Silicon Valley that wants to do a basic income experiment with about 100 people. But I think that the most interesting experiment has already started in Kenya. Obviously, it's not like a rich country, but it's a huge experiment with more than 20,000 people participating in it. And it's going to last for 12 years. So that's probably going to be a huge landmark experiment. And who's backing that and who's financing it? Give Directly. So Give Directly is a completely awesome NGO founded by um, a few PhD students a while ago. That Well, the name says it all. What they do is just give money to the poor because they think that the poor know much more about how to uh, deal with poverty than self-appointed experts do. And there's indeed a lot of evidence. I go over that in the book as well. Is that we've seen a cash transfer revolution in the global south. So from India to South Africa to Brazil to Mexico, we've seen these cash transfer programs where the poor just get money. And sometimes they have to vaccinate their kids or send them to school, but quite minimal conditions. And these programs are really, really effective. Time and time again, what research has found is that poverty is not a lack of character or a personality defect, as Margaret Thatcher once said. It's just a lack of cash. And it's very easy to cure a lack of cash. You know, you can use cash. <laughs> and as you're saying, a lot of people in Silicon Valley seem to have jumped on this bandwagon and are arguing for a UBI. Why is that, do you think? Are they just trying to shift responsibility and saying, well, the government should come up and produce a solution to this problem? Or why is it suddenly well, caught again, fire? There are a few reasons. So... One is the automation argument. The other one is that you've got the effective altruism movement that says that, you know, when you give to charities, you also need to find out what's most effective, what kind of charities that are backed by science, and what's simply the case that cash just has a huge mountain of evidence from scientific studies that shows that it works. So I think that's another reason. And what's also interesting about basic income is that it really goes straight through the old political division between the left and the right. So what we now have is a government that's quite big and getting bigger in terms of paternalism, but pretty small and getting smaller in terms of redistribution. Now, basic income would say, let's turn that around. Let's make government smaller and smaller in terms of paternalism. Let people decide for themselves what they want to make of their lives, but let's give them the means as well. So it's sort of, I like to call it an anarchist state, sort of a contradiction in terms, but I think that's the utopia of the future. <laughs> and 
When is your generation going to bring this about? <laughs> you want a date? or? <laughs> well, to be honest, I have no idea. I mean, no one knows. I'm not an optimist. I'm not a pessimist. I'm a possibilist. I just think that things can be different and that we should always remember that and fight for the changes that we want. And while you're trying to fight this fight, we've got politicians, most notably Trump in America, but also, I mean, get builders in your own country who are unsympathetic to your point of view. Do you think they're just a passing phenomenon or do they represent a big backlash against globalization and this technological revolution and our societies might actually move in the opposite direction to the one that you hope? Well, I think they are examples of what you get if you don't have a vision of where you want to go. As I said, the problem with the center is that it kept believing that you could just point out facts, graphs, tables, say, you know, our economies are still growing, unemployment is down, and then hope that voters will come back. Well, no, something else going on. And the problem with the left is that it only knows what it's against, against austerity, against the establishment, against homophobia, against racism. Well, you also need to be for something. You need to tell a story of where you want to go. Um, and I think that's been sorely lacking. And, well, it's interesting that you've got this quote from Mahatma Gandhi, right? The quote is, he actually never said it, but it's a great quote. First, they ignore you. Then they laugh at you. Then they fight you. Then you win. Now, this is always a quote that's being used by utopian thinkers, you know, because that's how utopia becomes reality. But just last year, Donald Trump posted it on his Instagram page. He's actually the biggest utopian thinker of the moment. So it works both ways civilization breaks down in the same way as we build it up. So we need some real pushback right now. <laughs> okay, now this debate has been going on for about 500 years since Thomas More wrote another rather famous book on utopia. And it's come in waves, often accompanied by fears of mass unemployment as a result of automation in the 60s and 70s and so on. Why do you think basic income is now assuming such centrality in the debate again today. What is it about our economy? What is it about technological disruption that you think is really going to force this onto the agenda again? Well, there are different reasons. I think the main reason is that so many people are realizing right now that we need some new big ideas, <laughs> that we can't just stick to the status quo and keep hoping for full employment or whatever. So I think that's the main reason. And obviously, Many people in Silicon Valley say, well, the robots are going to come and going to take all our jobs. Sort of seems to come out of feelings of guilt. Do you think the robots are going to take everyone's job? Well, the thing is, I'm a historian. So if you go back in history, you could just copy paste newspaper articles from the 50s and publish them again. Because <laughs> the same things back then, like in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, John Maynard Keynes wrote his famous essay about the 15-hour work week we're all supposed to have in 2030 in 1930. So the question is, what has happened? We should have had a much shorter working week already. And I think there are basically two answers. So the first answer is consumerism. We keep on buying stuff we don't need to impress people we don't like. And the other answer is bullshit jobs. And I think that's probably the best answer. We've seen an extraordinary rise of jobs in the Western world that don't really need to exist. According to a recent poll in the UK, it's about 37% of British workers in a job that's not necessary at all. And it's not me saying that. I mean, some people may think, well, you're a historian. What are you talking about? It's people themselves saying it. So I think that's probably the best explanation. And that's also why I'm a little bit skeptical about people saying the robots are going to take our jobs just sit in a roller coaster, enjoy the future. Well, we shouldn't underestimate capitalism's extraordinary ability to come up with new bullshit jobs. It's been quite creative in the past, and it will probably be so as well in the future. You also describe 
how there have been these kind of massive shifts in the workforce. I mean, in 1800, 74% of Americans were farmers. It's only 3% today. So we have lived through these extraordinary eras of upheaval where there have been shifts in employment patterns. And one of the most difficult things at any time like that is to understand what are the new jobs that are going to be created. You've referred to some of them as bullshit jobs, but they're also incredibly interesting jobs, aren't they, that are likely to be created. Augmented intelligence, Mm. uh, humans and robots working together to create some extraordinarily interesting new Mm. dynamics in the economy and society. So do you think actually the opposite might be true, that we might be on the dawn of creating some really fulfilling, rewarding employment as opposed to a lot of these terrible jobs that we have at the moment? Well, I'd hope so. I mean, just go to a general birthday party and professional people with excellent resumes and great salaries, give them a beer or two, and many of them will start complaining about how useless their job is. So I think that's actually one of the biggest taboos of our time. The left says we need more employment, we need more jobs, the right agrees. No one's talking about this particular issue. And I think what it means is that we need to completely redefine what work actually is. And this has been the dream of the great thinkers of the 20th century all along. So Keynes thought that the big challenge of the future would be boredom. Isaac Asimov, the great science fiction writer, he agreed. He thought that the biggest profession of the future would be psychologists because they would have to treat all the symptoms of boredom. Well, it's true that they're one of the biggest professions right now, but the reason is not boredom, but stress and burnouts. So something went wrong here. And what I think is one of the main lessons of history is that things can be different. There's nothing natural about the way we've structured our economy, our society, our systems of social security. We can do it differently. There have been experiments in the past that show that it can be different. Let's try and see. Right. The final area I'd just like to touch on is that you also have very kind of radical proposals in your book for pretty much the kind of free movement of people around the world. Yeah, You're not a big fan of passports or borders, uh, which on the face of it is a pretty astonishing thing to say, particularly in the kind of climate that we have at the moment. Why do you argue this and what would the benefits be? Well, let's zoom out a little. Let's imagine ourselves that we're in the year 2200 or 2300 and look back on our times. What would the biggest injustices be? I think there are probably two things would come to mind. First, obviously, the way we treat animals, but that's a subject for a different book. And the second thing is, I think, borders. I mean, it's the biggest source of discrimination we ever had. It's apartheid on global scale. For example, if you live in Nigeria and have exactly the same skill set as someone living in the UK or the US, your wage is about eight times as low. So the location bonus for people living in rich countries is huge. And, you know, it's much bigger than discrimination between men and women or black and white, which are also huge problems. But this is the biggest source of inequality. And we also know from a mountain of economic research that immigration is the most powerful weapon we've got against global poverty. And that, well, there's so much nonsense going around about it. No, they don't take our jobs. They create more jobs. Immigrants are very entrepreneurial. They're not all criminals or terrorists. And what I think is really wrong is that Very few politicians and very few journalists have dared to make that case in the past few years. So that's why I try to do so in my book. And that argument, though, appears to have lost all traction, doesn't it, in terms of politicians nowadays are all talking about building walls, reinstituting border control, stopping the flow of migrants across the Mediterranean or from... It's counterproductive, you know. For example, in the 1980s, a lot of Mexicans went to the U.S., but about 80% of them returned. Now, at the end of the 80s, the US started to militarize the border with Mexico, and nowadays only 10% return. So they have more illegal immigrants. 
you know, you should have breathing walls. People should be able to go back. But if you build higher walls, they'll still come in, but they don't go back anymore. There's really a lot of nonsense going around here. And I know it's not popular to say, but I'm 28, so I've got a lot of time and things can change. You know, we might have a very different debate in the future about this. All right. We must end it there. But thank you very much for a fascinating discussion. Thank you as well. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. Meanwhile, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon. 